0: Now, as church leaders, um, we spend quite a lot of our time thinking and contemplating and discussing culture, people in this city, the life of uh, this country at this time, what people are thinking, what they believe, where their hearts are at, where their heads are at, uh, trying to understand particularly how church fits into our cultural landscape. Now, as I just said, for those of you who don't already know, we're British. You will recognize that by our sort of strange sense of superiority that we try to put on you. Uh, It's all we've got left. That's all we've got left. Really, we're just jealous of what you've been able to do as a nation without our help. You've done quite well, really, since we let you have a go by yourselves in whatever it was, 1776. And now all we have is this sort of aloofness superiority that is actually just masking our deep, deep insecurities. Anyway, but as British people, it's been even trickier, actually, to find, uh, to sort of understand how complex this uh, culture is. But... um, I would say one thing, having been here for a few years, what we've noticed, particularly about this town, and I think probably if you've come here from other parts of the country, you'll have noticed it too, spiritually, it's very open in general. Uh, When Hannah and I first, um, actually before we moved, Hannah sort of came out here for a reconnaissance to kind of check out what it would be like to plant a church here. And she came back and she said, everyone is just so spiritual. I mean, some of them. Barking mad, but still just very spiritual, open to a whole range of things. And I think it's one of the reasons that LA is so alluring. It's because there is this openness. All options are open, everyone finding their own sort of spiritual path, whatever they want to make of their life, particularly in terms of belief and spirituality. A week or so after we arrived here, and I've told this story before, but we'd just arrived, we were fresh off the boat from London, um, where no one's spiritual. And uh, we arrived, and we were driving down the road, and there was this middle-aged man, fully clad in orange lycra, uh, with a sweatband, and he had om hands, and uh, he was humming, and just on the sidewalk, on this street, and he was just bouncing, up and down, up the street, and no one battered an eyelid. Not a, Completely normal. Yes, of course it's LA, you do what you like. And we thought, where have we come? Now, obviously, it's impossible to categorize the whole of a city of millions of people in one nice little, um, uh, kind of um, tied up with a bow, little box. But I do like doing that, so I'm going to carry on. But in general, I would say it's quite a spiritually open city, isn't it? And it represents a shift away from the sort of modernist, um, scientific, post-enlightenment-influenced ideas about truth and science and reality. Because if we were to go out on the streets and ask your everyday LA person um, about their life, spirituality, beliefs, things like that, I think the sorts of questions they would ask would be along the lines of, yes, but does it work, and is it good, and what will it do for me, as opposed to, is it true, for instance. So, in general, I think this culture is choosing a spiritual worldview over a necessarily scientific one, in general. However, this does not mean that this desire for spirituality makes people dogmatic or moralistic. In fact, anything but. Very few people want to be pinned down to something or to be narrow in their beliefs and reasoning. Because to be like that is to be seen as closed off and uncaring. It's to be seen as dogmatic in a very bad way. And really I think that's why people in general are saying goodbye to Christianity. It's not necessarily because they don't find it spiritually enlivening although actually lots of people don't find it spiritually enlivening. It's not necessarily because they don't find it true, although people are questioning a lot of the beliefs surrounding it. I think it's because they find it dogmatic and moralistic, and they don't like the dogma, and they don't like the moralism. But the problem with being so fearful of being pinned down to something tight and rigid and defined is that your spirituality necessarily then has to be quite vague and undefined. Um, There is a British comedian who's um, called Steve Coogan, and he plays this character called Alan Partridge. I need to warn you that, one, this is about 30 years out of date. Two, it's very British, and you won't find it funny at all. Three, it never really took off here for the above reasons. But four... Uh, It defined my childhood and, well, actually, my sort of uh, teenage years and early adulthood, and I live by it. So I'm going to say this. Purely for my own amusement. You're, not, you're going to go, oh, I don't understand. And I'm going to really enjoy this next couple of minutes. Just so you know. So anyway, Steve Coogan played this character called Alan Partridge. And he was a spoof talk show host. And he represented like little England. Sort of middle of the road, suburban, uh, quite boring, staid, conservative England. Okay? And so he has these various characters on his talk show. It's all a spoof. And one of them is a guy called Tony LeMesma who is like a cut-price Siegfried and Roy. He's like this um, baggy-suited, terrible magician, stroke-hypnotist, stroke kind of spiritual guru. And they have this conversation where Tony Lamesma starts by saying, what we all do, Alan, is we are all channelers. We channel energy from within to without. Alan, right. Now, I'm going to have to pin you down here. Can you be a bit more specific? I am a man who harnesses the harmony that is within all of us. Alan, hmm, that's more vague. (laughs) I want you to be more specific. Tony, let me put it like this, Alan. We have within us a consciousness which is only partially realized. I want us to fully realize it, to exploit all the hidden treasures that are within us. Alan, now I think I know what you mean. You're saying that I... Alan Partridge, if I were to harness the harmony or spirits within me and therefore the beings around me and somehow channel it through some sort of tubular conduit that goes into a cloud, I'm very sorry, I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. You've completely lost me. If you don't want to be dogmatic, you necessarily have to be quite vague. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for people questioning the Christianity that they've been presented with, the Christianity that they've been brought up on the grounds of, is it true, does it spiritually do anything, and most importantly, is it dogmatic in a way that actually destroys life? I think a degree of deconstruction is very important for everyone. But, and this is the irony and the heart of the problem, The original message of the gospel of Jesus is not dogmatic in any sense or form. It is not moralistic. But neither is it primarily scientific and neither is it primarily vague or undefined. Instead, the Christian gospel in its original form transcends all of those categories and it says this, come and meet a person Jesus Christ isn't primarily to be scientifically or historically excuse me Jesus Christ is not to primarily be scientifically or historically tested although he can and he should be He isn't primarily to be obeyed or believed in, although he can, and let me tell you, I think he should be, it makes life much better, and he isn't primarily to be spiritually experienced or meditated upon, although he can be, and I think he really should be. Jesus Christ is primarily to be met as a person, because Christianity at its fundamental level is one person, Jesus Christ. So then, let us try as we listen to this to let all the other cultural baggage that we have around organized religion, around spirituality, around the church, around politics, let us let that just fall off ourselves for a bit, shall we, and try to meet him as he wants to be met. In fact, as he can only be met as he actually is. And this is why we are starting this new series on how Jesus actually presents himself the I am sayings of John's gospel. There are seven of them. We're going to go through the seven. There are also seven signs in John's gospel, seven miracles. And both the signs and both the sayings all point to one thing. Who is this Jesus? Is he the son of God? So these I am sayings, they are all packed with meaning. And they include, as you might guess, the saying, I am. And this is the most significant part of the whole thing. You see, in Jewish understanding, there is one God who has made himself known to the people of Israel, and there are no other runners-up. In fact, all the other gods of the surrounding nations are regularly dismissed as idols or nothings. They have been created with human hands. They are mute, they are dumb, they are nothing. There is one God, and he is the God of Israel who has revealed himself to them. However, he remains somewhat distant. In fact, when Moses asks him who he is, God says, I am who I am. And he is then given this designator of his name, Yahweh, which is actually just four letters, and it cannot be pronounced because it is too holy. And whenever it would be read in scripture, it would be skipped over because you cannot utter this, it is so holy. And it really just means, Yahweh just means I am. Such was the reverence of this one God who was real and who said, I am who I am. So, fast forward, Jesus appears on the scene and he says, I am. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am, I am, I am. And it is a double whammy of sacrilegious blasphemy because not only is he just. Freely throwing around this term that he really should not be saying, I am. He is saying, I am that. No wonder he got killed. Uh, so, anyway, I don't know why I was getting all kind of head up. <laughs> Let us read this um, from John chapter 8, verse 12. It should be up on the screen. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, "'I am the light of the world. "'Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, "'but will have the light of life.'" The Pharisees challenged him, "'Here you are, appearing as your own witness. "'Your testimony is not valid.'" Jesus answered, "'Even if I testify on my own behalf, "'my testimony is valid, "'for I know where I came from and where I am going. "'But you have no idea where I come from "'or where I am going. "'You judge by human standards.'" I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is my Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. I am the light of the world. Let's consider light for a bit, shall we? Two thousand years after Jesus said these words, we know quite a lot more about light, its properties, what it does, how it works, than his original audience would have heard, would have known and it only really makes to uh, the metaphor all the more striking and powerful, because light is both wonderful and awesome in equal measure. And when I say awesome, I mean awesome in its original sense, i.e. slightly frightening, inspiring awe with its power, not in the sense of, oh, the barista has done a nice little kind of milk thing on the top of my latte, great, awesome. It's awesome, okay? Wonderful and awesome in equal measure. Wonderful because without light, nothing lives. Nothing grows, nothing thrives, everything dies. Light is the source of everything that we know and we can see around us. Every plant, every tree, every animal, every fish, every human being that has ever lived, all there because of light. As one uh, British comedian, not Alan Partridge, put it, Uh, it's extraordinary that we are just this right distance from the sun for all this incredible wonder to occur. On Mercury, nothing. On Venus, nothing. On Earth, fridge magnets, hummus, Spandau Ballet, anything you want, it's all here. All because of light. Wonderful, the basic source of life and the basic source of truth. Dive bars, dark and dingy places. Hospital theatres, as bright and shiny as can be. People go to dive bars to drink cheap cocktails, to have very fun nights, and, and, this is important, to be kind of shadowed away from some of the starker realities of life for a bit. And they're very good at doing those things, and they are good for us. However, When you're having open-heart surgery, you want that place in which you are having open-heart surgery to be the brightest, lightest, most well-lit place on earth. You want the doctor, the surgeon, to have the brightest, um, bluest, not necessarily bluest, but brightest eyes you could possibly imagine. You want everything to be bright and light. They They could be green, they could be brown. They just need to work very well. And you don't want any nurse to have an eye patch. You just want the whole thing to be light because you know that where there is light, there is truth. There is reality as it actually is. Light shows us where things really are and what they really look like. Now, I'm sure none of you would have ever done this, but I have heard tell stories of people going to nightclubs where it is dark and kissing people and they kiss people, and then the next morning they find out that the person they kissed wasn't exactly the person that they thought they'd kissed because those places are dark, and the light is there in the morning, and it shows things for how they really are. You would never have done this because light enters our eyes, and it hits our retinas, and it shows us the reality of life. It's wonderful in that way. And it also can, and it is also wonderful in the way that it brings joy and life to people. At some point, at some point, and I say this with deep faith, the weather in this city is going to be nice again. At some point, it will happen. It has gone on long enough, this kind of cloudy, dull, wet, horrible kind of we didn't move here for this. It's going to be nice again. And the sun will rise and the light will stream in, and everyone will go, Oh, I remember why I left Ohio. I remember... This is what it's all for, LA, I love you again, because it will be glorious and sunshine, and our spirits will rise, and we will be lifted up because the sun will be streaming in. And I'm sure you know, people who live in countries nearer to either of the poles, the South or the North Pole, they often suffer from a um, thing called SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, because they don't have enough light. It's why British people look like this, and Brazilians look amazing all the time. (laughs) the wonderful properties of light, but also it is awesome, frighteningly powerful. If we were only a fraction nearer the sun, sorry, further away from the sun, it's awesome power wouldn't reach us and the whole of earth would fall apart. If we were a fraction nearer, it would be too powerful, too hot for us, the whole thing would be burnt to a crisp. It doesn't just sustain and bring about life. It also has the power to destroy it in an instant. Now there's a certain amount of debate about um, what is causing the destruction of the ozone layer. On one side there are those people who think it's um, to do with humans creating too much carbon dioxide. On the other side it's those who don't really like fat. I couldn't help myself. Uh, But leaving all that aside, everyone on both sides of the spectrum agrees that without the ozone, very bad things are going to happen to this planet because of the power of the sun. Things will die. Awesome and frighteningly powerful so too in the way it can expose things. I've started working out. I know you can tell. Yes, thank you very much. This happens every kind of 18 months or so, um, and it lasts for a couple of weeks. Uh, um, But you know, the intentions are good. I've started working out, and I work out in our um, bedroom, and in our bedroom we have a um, kind of closet with a full-length mirror on it. And sometimes when I'm working out, I catch a glimpse of myself in there, and I think, I wish I was working out in a dive bar. (laughs) Because light exposes things, sometimes things that we don't actually want to see. Wonderful, life-giving, truth-revealing, joy-bringing, awesomely, frighteningly powerful light. Jesus says, I am that light, I am the light of the whole world an extraordinary thing to say verse 20 he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come it is a surprise that no one seizes him and no one puts him to death the fact of that we have sort of touched on, on why this is so incendiary but let us go a little bit deeper Because from the previous chapter, we know that Jesus is there teaching in the temple during the festival of tabernacles. Uh, This was a yearly festival, it was like a harvest festival, but specifically during this festival, what the Jewish people were celebrating was God's provision for them, particularly when they were in the Exodus, when they were wandering through the desert and they had nothing to eat. So there would be huge feasts during this festival, there would be like a um, water, uh, pouring out of water to represent the water coming from the rock, and most importantly for our purposes, there was a huge candelabra in the middle of the temple. 75 foot high, enormous thing with huge four different things with lights on it, uh, with candles on it, and this would be lit every single day, at night, during the festival. And it was so big, it gave light to the whole of the city, the surrounding city. And when it was lit, there would be dancing and joy and music and uh, a huge celebration. And it would be lit all night for all seven days of this festival and what it represented was this that during that time of wandering in the in the desert what was there to guide the people of israel a cloud a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night this was the way in which israel made their way through the desert But it wasn't just a pillar. It wasn't just this supernatural thing. Hannah and I were talking about it. I was reading my talk to her, and Hannah said, do you think that actually existed? Did it actually exist? Because she has no faith. Uh, I do, actually. I do think it did exist. But there was this huge uh, uh, pillar of fire. But it wasn't just a supernatural pillar of fire. It was, as Exodus says, not just given by God, but it was God himself. It was his glory guiding them, being the light to them. And this was a cause of huge celebration. Let us remember when the glory of the Lord was right there in front of us, directing our steps wherever we went. However, the last night of the Feast of Tabernacles on which Jesus is speaking this, do you know what happens to the candelabra? It is not lit. It is not lit, and in fact, there are no celebrations. In fact, all of the festivities begin to be taken down on the last night because it is a reminder to Israel that the glory of the Lord is no longer there. As the prophet Ezekiel has foretold, the glory of the Lord, the Ichabod, will depart. And so what this is a reminder of, we've had this celebration, but his light is no longer with us. And we long for him to return. We long for him to kick out the Roman occupying force. We longed him for him to set us free, to bring us into the promised land again, to enjoy all the fruits of this that we are promised. But it is gone. And then Jesus enters stage right, stands beneath it, and says, "I am the light of the world." Do you get the force? The sacrilegious blasphemy. Do you get what he's saying? I am here, and I'm never going. I'm not here partially. I'm not here in some uh, esoteric way, but I am here, the living God, standing before you, and I am saying, I am the light of the world. You see, Jesus isn't talking just in abstract philosophical terms. He's not going, I will open your eyes to spiritual truths I will show you what life is about. He's saying, I am a real person. Come and meet me, and I will pour my light into you. This is something tangible to follow. Uh, One of the questions regularly here, and I think this is probably um, something that you may have asked yourself as well, is, can all those other religions, those other philosophies, can they really be wrong? Can't there be truth and light and goodness in all of them? I think the answer is twofold. One, of course things can be wrong. Of course they are. It's just a philosophical truth about life. Things can be wrong. Some things, it's kind of inconsequential whether we believe them and then we find out actually they were wrong because it doesn't really affect anything. Like when people believed the earth was flat, when they found out it wasn't, it doesn't change much, we just know it's not flat anymore. However, other things that are wrong when we believe them, the consequences of believing them can lead to serious, serious problems, such as the 17th century church insistence that the center of the universe was the earth and the sun went round the earth. And Galileo and others said, no, it doesn't. We go round the sun and he was imprisoned for the rest of his life by the church. That is a big problem when you believe something that is wrong, it makes you it look a little silly. So let's just admit, and let's admit for ourselves as Christians, as people in this place at this time, that we could well be wrong about quite a lot of things. Let us be humble enough to admit that. So number one, of course things can be wrong, but number two, in contrast, there can of course be truth and goodness anywhere. Of course there can, and there is. As many of you will know, Your non-Christian friends are much nicer than your Christian friends. And that is not an illusion. They are. (laughs) They actually are. They're nicer because they're nicer. Of course, there is light and goodness all over the place. And Jesus isn't saying there isn't truth, there isn't helpful advice for life, there isn't helpful ideas to help us work out this thing that we are working through to understand other people, to understand how the world works. He isn't saying there isn't goodness and light all over the place. He isn't saying that. But here's the thing, every other religion, every other philosophy, every other spiritual leader has always only ever said, I am pointing people to the light, to the truth, to the meaning of life. This is what I am trying to do and what Jesus is saying is, I am the sun. I am the sun in the sky and I've stolen this, but I'm going to pass it off as my own. Everything else is just moons orbiting the earth, moons. And if you have ever tried to put up a tent when you're camping in moonlight, it's possible. But the sun comes up and you realize, I didn't put that up very well. Because Jesus is saying, I am the bright shining light of the world. There's no one else like me. There is no one else who comes close to me. I am the thing and I am a person. you don't need to be afraid of him. Often people can say um, they really struggle with the God of the Old Testament as opposed to the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament, pretty angry. God of the New Testament seems quite nice. And then at times, really angry out of nowhere. Why did he do that? But in general, quite nice. Now, they're exactly the same God. The problem And in fact, the issue at the heart of the Old Testament is the problem of unmediated God. God, in all his glory, in his raw potency, in his unmediated power, is nevertheless interacting with people. And the big question for the whole of the Old Testament is, how have we not all been consumed about a million times over? How are we still alive? Moses says, I would like to see the glory of God. And God says, you're not going to see that because you will die. Here, hide in the little cleft of a rock and then we'll let it pass you by and you might just catch a glimpse of it. This is the raw potency of God, and it is unmediated. So actually, everyone should be being burnt to a crisp all the time because this is the potency of this brilliant, bright white of goodness and justice and perfection of God. And then, when we come to the New Testament, it is all mediated through the living Son, Jesus Christ, and we can stand in his presence again. He becomes one of us, and he dies the death that we should have died And he lives the life that we should have lived. And he stands there and says, I take all of that and now enter into my presence. You don't need to be veiled. You don't need to be worried. You never, ever, ever need to fear again. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Jesus loves you. He stands before you and says, it's all going to be okay. And he's the only one who can say that. Um, I'll end with this. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Um, Wouldn't it be great as Christians to be full of light Wouldn't it be great to have the things that we're most ashamed of just exposed and got rid of once and for all? The things that we keep in the shadows. Wouldn't it be great just to have them blown away in the light of his goodness? Wouldn't it be great to be so full of light that people walk up to us and talk to us because they want to know what is going on with us that is so different? Wouldn't it be great to have all the joy that Jesus talks about, all the joy of the sun rising each morning and showering us with his light, that despite our circumstances, despite even when the worst terrible things happen to us, we still know that we have the joy of God flowing through us because we're filled with his light. And I know that there are people going through the worst possible things right now in this room. Totally out of your control, totally not your fault horrible things you're having to deal with because of life and I don't want to pretend that those aren't real and those aren't painful and we pray for you and we want to be with you and we want to talk with you and we want to help you through that but what I am talking about is knowing the light of life flowing through us despite whatever goes on and wouldn't it be amazing wouldn't it be great if as Christians we were fruitful We were effective. We produced things that made the world a much, much better place. All of this comes from the light of Jesus flowing through us. And all he says is, come and meet me. Come and meet me. Exactly what Kelly was talking about. Just come and meet me and I will do it for you. You don't have to obey the rules. You don't have to do the dogma. You don't have to believe the right things. You don't have to do any of that. All Jesus is saying is, here I am. Do you want to follow me? Just come with me. Come with me and allow me to change you. Good? Good. Amen. Let's sing a song. And as we sing this song, which we'll end with and I encourage you to stand. You might just want to close your eyes. You don't necessarily have to sing the words. But I want to say a couple of things just as we're getting ready, as the band getting ready. Um, Light shines, and sometimes it exposes things. Jesus doesn't want to make you feel um, shameful in any way. He's never done that. He never wants to do that. What he wants to do is take whatever is making you shamed, making you feel guilty, and get rid of it. So if something has come to light, you don't have to tell anyone. All you have to do is tell Jesus. Give it to him and let him wash it away once and for all. You never have to pick it up again. This is the beauty of the cross. You do not have to work for your forgiveness. You do not have to say the right things. You do not have to promise to never do it again. Guess what? You're probably going to do it again. Right? We do it all the time. We're idiots. But the more we give it over to him and the more we let him get rid of it, the better we will be at not doing it again because we know what it's like to be free. So just leave it with him and let him forgive you then you might actually forgive yourself, which is usually the harder thing. But if he forgives you, you'll definitely forgive yourself in, a, in more simple ways, in easier ways. Secondly, come back to Jesus. Wherever you are, just come back to him. Stop messing around. Stop, you know, two steps forward, one step back. He's what you need. He's what you're looking for. Just come back to him because he wants you and he's sad without you and you are sad without him. He's the one you're looking for. Good, good. Let's sing this song.